The scripture is printed for you on uh, page four. We're going to be looking at Jesus uh, this morning in a fascinating book of the Bible that scares a lot of people, uh, including me. Uh, but we want to see Jesus. That's really been my prayer for this year, hanging out with some Christian men. And we're just like, we just want to know Jesus this year from Genesis to Revelation. We want to see him. We want knowing him to, to change us. Um, so there were three-dimensional people. Uh, and if we're going to be three-dimensional people, we need to see a three-dimensional Jesus, who he really is and how awesome he is and how beautiful he is to be uh, transformed uh, to look like him. He was emotional. He was physical. He was full of mercy. He was full of truth. He was full of compassion. Uh, spent a lot of time with, with people. And so this is no flat cardboard flannograph Jesus. Uh, this is Technicolor 3D that makes you uh, dizzy because uh, he's so real. He's so alive. And I want us to see him this morning and for us to come fully alive and live for him. So, uh, <clears throat> Let's stand as we uh, <clears throat> read the scriptures. And in this passage, we see that everybody that sees Jesus falls on the ground. So I'm not going to ask you to do that, but we will stand to, uh, to honor Jesus. This is the uh, Apostle John writing. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Please be seated. I think I have to pray again just to worship. Let's just pray. Father in heaven, we worship you. 
the one who sits on the throne. We, we worship the Lamb who was slain and has given himself for us, people from every nation who now claim his name and are called into his kingdom. And we rejoice, and we ask that at the end of this sermon we would rejoice in Christ and bow at his feet and heap all praise and all glory on him. And so give us understanding, give us joy as we hear and believe uh, this uh, vision of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've been meditating on, on the book of Revelation, not just because it's a crazy book or because it's, it's weird, but I really wanted to get inside the head of John. Because for most of my Christian life, I've been kind of a one-dimensional Christian, uh, a lot of Bible knowledge and stuff like that, and I really wanted to be as 3D as Jesus, that he was really alive, really emotional, really spent time with people. And this guy, John, was one of Christ's disciples, and it said that he was the one that Jesus loved, which seems a little gratuitous for someone to write in their book. And by the way, I'm the one that Jesus loved. You know, it sounds a little, uh, he's too much of himself. But this was a gift that Jesus brought him into the closest circle. Uh, It says at the Last Supper, he leaned up against Jesus' breast as they were out on their kind of Mediterranean couch on one elbow you know, scooping the hummus and the, with the bread and the lamb. Uh, John was right next to him, whispering things, asking him questions about, who's going to betray you, Jesus? So he was a, an intimate uh, companion and, and a confidant of Jesus. But you've got to think about where is John when revelation comes to him. He's all alone, exiled because of his faith, on a little sun-baked island in the Mediterranean Sea, suffering for Jesus. So I'm a little bit of a cynic. I'm a little bit of a, kind of like Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park, kind of the chaos theorist. So I'm always thinking, like, what is John thinking? He's like, well, I'm imagining his thought process. What do you get when you're a favorite of Jesus? And he looks around it, (laughs) and he's all alone. He's cut off from fellowship. He's on a sun-baked island. And, and he's thinking in his mind, I have made Jesus' business my business, and now look where it's got me. I almost invad- imagine the seagulls over his head swooping and kind of laughing at him. If you ever spend a lot of time with seagulls, I'm at the dump a lot just because of my work. So it, that place is just full of seagulls, and the seagulls are full of personality, and it almost seems like they're always laughing at you. So I'm thinking of John. His inner thoughts are saying, what do you get when you follow Jesus? It feels like a bum deal. And then you have these seagulls going, laughing at him like, this is what happens when you trust Jesus. And I can quickly imagine, as many of the prophets of the Old Testament, especially Jeremiah, that a deep depression could easily sink upon him as he thinks about, I did what you said, and this is how it turns out. And maybe as we're getting into a new year and we're making uh, New Year's resolutions where we're going to be more committed, we're going to read more scripture, we're going to give up this sin, we're going to start this habit of so many push-ups or, or uh, doing so many minutes of cardio and stuff like that. We're thinking about, I'm going to be a new person, but we still live in our same place. We still live with our same thoughts. We live with the same people and the same job, and we really struggle. How could I be different? And, and really, anybody that talks in terms of motivation or, or uh, healing or, or psychology will say, you have to have a more compelling vision of the thing that you want or the thing that you need than you're currently thinking of. And God in his grace appears to this 
one whom he loved, the one who is now suffering because of knowing Jesus. And it says in chapter 1, he fell down as one dead when he saw Jesus in his full glory. But Jesus does something awesome to him, lays his hand on him and lifts him up. But here we see in this passage a deep sadness in John because he sees that there's a book. And if maybe you're a fearful person and you're saying, what's in the book? Is it good news or is it bad news? Well, if it's good news, it's still a problem. What does it say? Nobody's worthy to open this book. It's locked, 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 double locked, and then a password encrypted with only one of those little key tags that you carry around that generates new passwords. Nobody has the password. Nobody can tell. Even if it's good news, we're never going to know what's the good news. And if it's bad news, we're believing the worst about what could it be that this is terrible news for the world and it's going to bring great sadness. But who can tell? Who's going to erase our fears, our greatest fears, and tell us what's really in here? And so he weeps and he laments that nobody knows what's in this book. No one is worthy to open it. No one is authorized and no one is able to crack this book open to tell the world what is in it. But two things before we think about this book for a second. I skipped one important part. This first picture he sees in this chapter is of a throne. Now a lot of you are maybe trying to upgrade your phones or things like that, so you're calling in a customer service. And you're really getting jerked around and spending way too much of your valuable time listening to their wonderful music. And then when finally you get a real person, what do you do? Sorry, you're a great person. I know you're just doing your job, but you're not giving me what I really want. (laughs) And what's what's your only card you can play? Can I speak to your manager, right? (laughs) So really, God in his grace is showing us if we are deeply sad and we're deeply disturbed about the future or about the present or about our own selves, our our deep need is to know who's the manager. (laughs) And so God's most first and most basic revelation is who's the manager of this joint? God, the one on the throne. And the one on the throne has this book. And we have to wonder, what's in it? We're just dying with anticipation, either dread or excitement. What's in this book? And so it says it's a scroll written on the front and the back, conserving paper, you know, writing on both sides, which actually wasn't super normal in the... uh, in the uh, Middle East because the back was kind of scratchy and they polished the front so it would take ink. So uh, God's written something on the front and the back of this and it's locked with seven seals. And scholars of the Roman world say the scroll that has seven seals is actually a will and testament. What's a will and testament? It says, I'm the possessor of a huge estate and when I die I want such and such to go to so and so. I want cousin so-and-so not in the will because he's worthless, right? And I, and I want so much of this to go to charity, and I want so much of this to go to an endowed chair of philosophy at UC Davis, or, you know, whatever they, they say is, I want certain things done because this is my desire, this is my will. And who is able to make that happen? Someone's called a executor who can carry out the desires of uh, the one who said it. So God has a desire for the world. God has wishes for how his universe is to be run. But the real struggle is, who's qualified to open that? There are no men. What does it say? There's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who's able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so he weeps. 
because every prophecy, uh, this is a, a common picture throughout the Old Testament, is God speaks and we want to know what he says. God, what have you said about this world? What have you said about history and your plan for everything? And John weeps because we're never going to know. We're never going to know. No one is able to unlock this. But then here is what I'm calling in, in point one, how God answers our sad anxiety about the future. What's the future about? Well, our first hint is in verse 5. And one of the elders, the one who surround these uh, people who surround the throne worshiping God, he says, weep no more, behold, there's a lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered, and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But also, what have we just said? This is a will, last will and testament. When do you get to crack open a last will and testament and have it enacted? When someone, someone has to die first, right? So here we hear about a great victory of a lion, and he's able to open the scrolls. But then we see a more uh, gripping uh, picture. That now there is someone who can open it, and he is a lion. He is mighty, and he is God's anointed king from the root of David from the tribe of Judah. He has conquered. So he's a victorious one. He's a majestic one. He's an authorized one. He is the one that God had promised. And then he delivered on that promise in Jesus that he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, to take his rightful throne that had been announced to David and now had come true. So our question is, how am I going to know the future? How am I going to know what's going to happen to me? Who really knows? The answer is, God knows. And how does God make it known? As we're going to see throughout this passage, God makes known who he is. God makes known his will for the world. God makes known his plans of redemption through Jesus. So we see Jesus first as a lion, and we say, man, I'm so encouraged. There's a lion on the job here. He's majestic. He roars over his, all his enemies. But then we see, uh, secondly, that this is actually a bloody victory in a very ironic but beautiful way. Look at what it says next in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I'll just stop right there. This lion, who's full of majesty, full of royalty, is actually also a lamb who has suffered as a sacrifice for his people. How did Jesus conquer us? How did Jesus conquer death? How did Jesus conquer sin? In this great reversal that God does through the gospel, we almost think of it as, as God's upside-down logic, as Pastor Michael reminded us, is that this is an upside-down kingdom, kind of like through the looking glass. This one who conquers and rules everything so that we no longer need to fear is one who himself has died. He himself is a victim. And he's not just a victim of circumstance. He's not just a victim of politics. He's actually a victim of our sin. He's a victim of God's holy justice, the lamb suffering in our place. How's that going to comfort you? God, I already have all these fears. God, I'm already kind of freaked out. Why are you showing me something bloody? Well, these are people steeped in the Old Testament. They knew that the only way that anyone could ever come into God's holy and majestic, awesome presence 
was with lots of blood, with lots of animal blood, with lots of ceremony that they could only approach because they were sinful to this holy God through lots and lots of blood, through a substitute life, a substitute animal. And here, to conquer our fears and to say, why is he worthy to open up history to us? Why is he worthy to tell us all that God wants and all that God wishes and all that God delivers to us? How is he going to do that? He's going to do it through sacrifice, through this one who submitted perfectly to God and ended up perfectly dead and then raised perfectly glorious. This one, Jesus, he was slain, but then he's standing alive again. And when the disciples saw Jesus alive again, it blew their minds. And they went running to tell the news. We've seen Jesus. And as Pastor Michael pointed us out, the first messengers of a resurrected Jesus were women who weren't legally able to give testimony in court. But yet God, in his upside-down grace, has chosen the unlikely to be the messengers of the most unlikely but the most beautiful truth is that the one who reigns and rules everything is the one who has been slain. It's a lamb. But with every victory, you talk about what's the spoil. The old-fashioned word was booty, but it means definitely different things now. But uh, what are the riches that you have uh, received because of your victory? Well... The spoils of war were all the riches and were all the, uh, the things, all the trophies. Sometimes the most treasured emblems of a nation were now taken and set up in the halls of power of this conquering nation. But you see a very different picture about after this bloody victory. Do you know who the trophies are? People. What is God about? He's a personal God and he has made personal creations man and woman made in his image and you know what his greatest trophy of his conquering love is is people he doesn't just do uh, the running back who takes the ball down to the end zone this is not just some extended end zone dance where Jesus is saying I'm awesome I'm awesome I'm awesome what does it say suddenly surrounding the lamb is this song and the song says look at verse 9 Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. It looks like a defeat, but it's actually the decisive victory over all that opposes God and that has alienated us from God. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. God's people, saved by his grace, are the spoils of Christ's victory. If you want to use the football analogy, he comes running out of hell with people under his arm. Running for his life, full of life, running with joy. And he, what does Hebrews say? Let's run this race of faith, looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him despised the shame of the cross, and he went to it. What was the joy? The joy was having us. Wade preached about that a few weeks ago. The joy of having his people. We are the spoils. But always the next question is, who are God's people? And if some of you know your Bible, your, probably your first question is, Jewish people, because that's what the whole Old Testament is about. You are my people. I've chose you. I, I took you out of, out of Egypt. You're my people. But here's something crazy. What does it say? From every tribe, Okay, so maybe 12 tribes of Israel, yeah. Uh, oh, wait, and language? 
Whoa, not just Hebrew. Whoa. And people. Whoa, there's other ethnicities that are God's people. Oh, and every nation, geopolitical, kind of different colors on the map kind of thing on the Rand McNally map. Listen to what he's saying. Well, think about it this way. What did God say to Noah when he was going to judge the world, but he was going to save a people for himself? What did he say? Take some of each, what? Animal. And then he was going to reboot the world. He was going to clean scrub the place and then do a fresh install of the human race, starting with Noah and his sons, and then each of each kind of animal. Think about it this way. And this is what the apostles talked about. This was Martin Luther's favorite analogy is Jesus is the ark, and he has chosen what? One of each kind of people. People from each kind of people and nation and tribe and tongue from all over the world. So it's not just Jewish people. There's not just red-faced Scottish Presbyterians. There's not just uh, devout uh, Central American uh, Pentecostal grandmas who are going to be in heaven. No, it's, it's, it's from all the ends of the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. And this is the great reversal of that first uh, and greatest rebellion against God, which we saw at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that story? They said, we're going to build a tower that's going to reach to the sky. We're going to do a technological program that shows that human beings, there is no limit to what we can do. And what did God say? He said, unless we stop this, there is no limit to what they can do in terms of fully rebelling against God and never being able to be restored. And God did something to them. What did he do? It says they all spoke one language and quickly God did something. He scrambled them by scrambling their languages. And so... Ever since the Tower of Babel, we have been separated by our languages, separated by our tribes, separated by our geopolitics, so that we suspect the other, and we fear the other, and we we fight for our own tribe. And you know what God has done? By His grace, first of the day of Pentecost, we hear the gospel coming to every tongue, every language, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. They could say, hey, they're, they're singing our song. They're speaking the gospel in our own language. They heard it. And miraculous here by God's grace is the things that would tend to separate us and break us apart from each other. Now Jesus has trumped that through his victory that he's now ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So he's conquered us and he's actually blown through the things that separate us and now has united us in this next point. And I want to add a little phrase to point three. He awards us a new identity and a high calling. Two things. So that now the most basic thing about us is not our skin color. It is not the language that we speak. It is not uh, where, on which side of the border we live or who is our prime minister or who is what style of government we have. It is now that we have been ransomed by God. He is our new reality. He is our new king. And he plants us, as we see next in verse 10, he has made us into a kingdom. It's got to be some great king who can unite all those different things. Has the United Nations been able to do that? No, we're still squabbling, even though everybody has a chair at the United Nations and there's an interpreter in your earpiece. The United Nations can't do it. Who alone could unite all the nations? 
Jesus. And how does he do it? Through a sacrificial love that cleanses our sins and breaks down what alienates us from God. And now we have a new king. And under a new flag, I don't know, maybe it's a two-sided flag. One has a mighty lion king. Sorry, Disney. But a mighty king who rules everything. And he does it well, and he does it with justice. But this Lion King is also the lamb who was slain. And so this is a blood-soaked flag, not the blood of his enemies, but the blood of his son. And we live under that flag. And as John himself, in his own biography, we see that to follow Jesus, to live under his flag, is actually to be soaked in blood as well. As he says in the first part of Revelation, he says, I am a fellow partner which is the same word that Michael talked about last week, that we are fellow, uh, we have fellowship, we are partners together. He says, I'm a partner in the tribulation, I'm a partner in the suffering, and I'm a partner in the testimony. Meaning that now that we live under this flag, we lived under this crucified king, our story is one of victory, but it is a victory that suffers. It is a conquering that serves. It is, it is a rejoicing that weeps. And you say, that sounds so contradictory that it doesn't even make sense. But this is the gospel. The gospel strikes us with a deep sadness that we have sinned and we have dishonored God. But then we also weep for joy that someone else was judged in our place. So there's a deep joy, even tinged with a deep sadness, that we have yet to see every knee bow to Jesus. And even parts of our own selves have yet to fully bow to Jesus and treat him as if he's our king and the king of everything. And so he's made us a kingdom. He has joined us to himself that we no longer live for the king that we used to live for, which was self, just pleasing myself. Now, as John himself finds, is that when he makes Jesus his business, God is glorified, but that we also suffer. But that is our our common lot together. So much so that the apostle Peter says, when you suffer, don't think like something strange has happened to you, like you're not doing this right. No, this is exactly what God has invented, that we would share not only in his glory and in his victory, but also in his sufferings. And we don't hear that enough about, about that in Christianity. It's always, get a piece of Jesus and live your best life now. Paul says it this way, I want to know Jesus, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, and I want to be a part of the resurrection. He's like, I want the whole deal. I even want the suffering part. I even want the spicy bits, I want the sour bits, because all of it is Jesus, that's what he is about. And so he has made us a kingdom, not just so that we can be trophies up on a shelf where we feel special and God polishes us every day and say, oh, you're my pretties, I love you, you know, you're my little collection. No, but he's invited into a living, acting, serving kingdom where we are serving our enemies and forgiving them and loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving God uh, above all. So that's our new identity. But we next see a high calling. It says, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. What's a priest? Someone that's super holy and says blessings at meals and football games. Um, now, priests in, in the biblical culture were people who stood between man and God and spoke both ways. Messages from God and the most awesome message that priests would give to the people in the Old Testament is, your sins are forgiven. So it's a way to stand between God and the world 
not saying, I hope you burn, which a lot of the world is like, that's all we've heard from Christians is turn or burn, you know, uh, burn in hell, God bless you and everything like that, right? That you would snuff it in God's mercy, kind of to use the words of Monty Python, right? Um, that is not the message of a priest. The message of a priest is God desires fellowship with you, and he has made everything so that he will have fellowship with you, that this has covered your sin. So he stands between God and man, but also hears from people, lives close to the people to hear what are their uh, concerns, what are their sins, what are their uh, worries. But in a very special way, we see two uh, people in Scripture. I want to look quickly at this to really figure out what should I be doing as a Christian? Not just the, okay, I should be going to church, I should be reading the Bible, should go to Sunday school, should be in a small group. But what is kind of my core activity? What is my, how should I think about myself? And I, and I think we see two pictures here. One is in the Old Testament uh, with Abraham. And I'll just read real quickly out of Genesis 18. And Tim Keller first turned me on to this uh, concept. So we have to have a Keller moment every sermon, I think. So uh, that was my Keller moment. Um, and here Abraham is acting a lot like Jesus. He, he acts as a precursor, as a pre-picture, as a prequel of what Jesus would be like. This is when uh, God is announcing he's going to destroy Sodom. And then Abraham has the gall to pipe up and start talking to God about this city. Verse 22, so the men turned from there. These were the angels announcing the bad news. And he went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Basically saying, I know I'm kind of crazy to do this, but I really feel like I should, uh, although I'm just dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Maybe there's just 45. And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose, okay, 40 are there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I won't do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, but I want to counteroffer. I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20. Okay, 20. He answered, okay, if there's 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, Lord, don't be angry. I will speak again one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. Well, there weren't even 10 because... The city went up and smoke. What's Abraham doing? Talking back to God? No, he's talking to God on behalf of the lost. He's talking to God on behalf of a city full of sin, ready for judgment. But he is internalizing what God has said about himself, that God loves mercy. And God also loves holiness. And so he's standing, holding on to these two things that seem to be opposites, but holding on to people in his heart as he holds on to God's glory in his heart. And he stands between the two and he pleads with God. What does a priest do? Stands before God pleading for people. And this is my great uh, 
confession that I don't pray for people. I don't look like Abraham. They're like, this is Old Testament Abraham. He shouldn't know how to be so bold and so Christian and so awesome, you know, because it's Old Testament. But here is someone whose heart has been gripped by God's grace, and he starts to think about those who don't yet have it. He's gripped by it. Yes, God, you're, you're holy. Yes, you're a just, but we're not just cheering on, nuke them till they glow, God, because they deserve it. He's gripped by also the mercy of God, and, and we would say he's gripped by the gospel, that would you spare them, not only in your justice, but also in your mercy. But ultimately, we see this in Jesus quickly, uh, Luke 22. where Jesus actually makes a connection between the kingdom belonging to it, but also suffering for it. And then he intercedes for Peter. And in the South, we would say about Peter, bless his heart. He's a mess, right? Um, But this is what Jesus says uh, to him. 22, uh, 28. Oh, I'm in Matthew. No wonder that didn't make sense. There we go. I've got a sticky note I should have used. There we go. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. He's talking to the disciples. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he talks to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How does Jesus treat those who suffer for the sake of his name? He says, I'm praying for you that your faith not fail. Satan has one intention, which is to destroy you. My intention is for you to be saved and rescued and be a minister to your brothers. So God's justice and God's glory demands judgment, but God's glory is also gracious and loving. And we have Jesus here praying for his weak and confused and awkward and embarrassing friend, Peter, that his faith not fail. And so our high calling is to be grabbed by God for his purposes, not just so that we're his precious and we're his special one, his little pet, but that we are in the work of his kingdom, which is to be interceding and loving others so that their faith might not fail, to be praying for them, to encourage them, to stand before God and pray for them, stand with them as they suffer, as they struggle with their sins, seeking God's grace, seeking God's favor, seeking God's help. And we can be, as it says here, priests to our God. And then it says, and they shall reign on the earth. This takes us all the way back to Genesis, where it says, and he made them male and female in his image, that they might rule over all the creatures, that they might have dominion over all the earth, so that they might be his managers while he reigns from heaven. He has given and delegated uh, gracious authority to his people to turn this place into a garden a place where God loves to be with his people and his people love to be with him. And here we hear God restoring us to his original intended purpose that we would no longer be ruled over by creation. Think about it this way. What are addictions? Addictions are being ruled over by created things. Wine, images, money, uh, eating, not eating, exercise, 
uh, all of these things that we abuse, we have said to the creation, be my God, be my everything. And when God grabs a hold of us and, and forgives us and changes our heart, he enables us now to use these things like Tim Keller likes to say, money, sex, and power, the things that seem to absolutely corrupt through the gospel and through God's grace, these can now be redeemed so that they become tools to glorify God and means to enjoy God, no longer being ruled by these things. We now use them for God's glory, and they shall reign on the earth. And then we close, because uh, we have to, and this is how it, how it closes. All of heaven and earth explodes into a song. So what we're doing here is not just enlightening you about Jesus. What we're doing here is not just inspiring you, go be like Jesus. But Jesus said this way, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. We have just seen Jesus, and whoever sees uh, God in his glory in Scripture, they fall on their faces. And sometimes they are dead silent because they are speechless. And in other times... They begin pouring out speech to tell everything that God is, everything that God has done, everything that God is worthy of. And so here we have angels, we've got creatures, we've got millions and millions and thousands and thousands. And then verse 13, we've got creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Think about it this way. Fish are drinking seawater and drinking a toast. To the Lamb, to the Lamb, be glory and honor. Birds, as they fly through the air and sing their songs, we hear it as bird chirping, but they are singing, to the Lamb, to the Lamb, He is worthy. He made it all and He's redeeming it all. And then in every tribe, and in Chinese, and in Swahili, and in Gaelic, and in uh, all these other languages that I can't think of right now, but all of this speech, all pouring out in its uniqueness and in its, in its diversity, is all singing one thing. Worthy is the Lamb. And we would say, oh, if only, as a guitarist, I'm saying, if only I had an amp big enough to reach to the ends of the earth so that this whole place reverberates with the praise of Jesus. And you know what? God has accomplished it. The engineers haven't been able to do it, but God does it. That he calls every inch of creation to join the orchestra and to all of the joy and all of the love and all of the glory to pinpoint not on himself but on his son, the one who died to ransom us to God. So what does this mean? Jesus opens the book to us and Jesus says that the punchline is him and he has been bloodied for our sins and he has been victorious. It also means that we have a high calling. So even if you are jobless right now, this is a great time for you to think about and maybe retool, not for a new career, but based on this new calling. How can I become a servant to people in prayer and in service, announcing God's uh, freedom uh, through Jesus? How can I start to live in 3D, be a 3D person, not just person that goes to church and then goes to work and then goes home. Those seem to be the three dimensions of our life. The three dimensions that we receive when we look at Jesus is fully alive, fully forgiven, fully rejoicing in Jesus and singing his praise. And then every Sunday and then in small groups, we are joining in the choir practice that all creation has been called to, to heap all praise and all glory to him. He is glorious. He is worthy so that all of our net worth whether it's talents or time or money or relationships or opportunities, it proclaims his worth to him and to the world. 
forever may he be praised. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have been looking down. Our eyes have been downcast because of the weight of our sins and the weight of our worries and the weight of the world. And just for myself, I feel like my middle name is, is Flux and, and Limbo. And so in the middle of that, just as you did to John, you proclaimed and showed a vision of Jesus, ruling everything as a lion and redeeming everything as a, as a lamb who was slain. So we thank you that we can take a new identity, not based on our job, not even based on our ethnicity, not even just based on our background or where we live or how we vote, that we are now defined by the one who has claimed us as his prize through his victory over sin and death. We pray that increasingly in the days to come that IGC and and every church in this land would make Jesus the big deal, would make him the main thing, and that we would rediscover our high calling and also our new identity in him, that we might be servants, that we might be gardeners, and that we might tend our relationships and our families and our neighborhoods as wise gardeners who know the creator and know the recreator, Jesus, and that that would make all the difference in how we live and what we do and how we do it, with what kind of joy and with what kind of passion to serve that was in our Lord Jesus and is now in ours by your grace. Receive all the praise and glory from our lives and from our fellowship and from any credit that flows to us through anything good we have done. We throw it at his feet and say, He is worthy to receive all glory, honor, praise, and wisdom and power and blessing. Receive it, Jesus. Be our all in all. Be over all. And would you, your grace be evident in our lives to your praise. And Father, thank you for giving the Son. And Spirit, thank you for bringing home to our hearts all of the blessings and all the love of the Father and the Son. We praise you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.